0: Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we're going to counter our last week's episode where we looked at classic sci-fi. And so now we're going to talk about modern sci-fi. And to help us out, we have a brand new guest, Jamie. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you all for having me here. It's uh, an honor to be here, especially after I've known Dan for so many years. And uh, it feels Mm -hmm. a little weird to think that this is the first time we've been in the same space in some capacity with one another, even though we are in the exact same province as one another. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, in my head, like you primarily exist as like, (laughs) like on Twitter, like you would live within. It's like, it's, it's hard to imagine there's like a corporal being attached <laughs> <But> there is <laughs> and now i get to 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 see you which is exciting um yeah i thought you'd be good for this cuz i mostly because like from knowing you and especially from you know keeping up with your reviews both on letterbox and on your own uh sites it's like you see as much of everything as you can in terms of new releases mm-hmm. um, that's right you're very like i mean I, we don't have to go into your your letterbox uh, <laughs> stats from last year and year end, but they were intense. But I was like, hey, like if anyone's, if we're going to do modern science fiction and we need someone who's seen a, a, a wide sample of modern sci fi from the last few years. Jamie by I don't even know if you like science fiction that much but by virtue of seeing so much you will have seen
1: (laughs) me liking science fiction what a concept am I right
2: (laughs) yeah as I see your Blade Runner and the thing posters behind you yeah Yeah, so um yeah we're glad you're here I think it'll be a a -hmm. good counterbalance to to Ian and myself um we should note that because I was confused, I'm sure the listeners were too, because we did, classic sci-fi was like, everything up to 2001 A Space Odyssey. So that, okay, by that logic, our counterpoint modern science fiction is going to be everything after. Like, that's the paradigm shift. And Ian's like, no, no, 2010s. Yeah.
1: Even though one of 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 mine is from 2006, but I mean, that's... We'll we'll let it slide. That's
2: still 21st century. I was just like... Because to me is like if you're having this clear delineation point, it's like before and after.
0: No, no, no. But yeah.
2: I was wrong. Yeah, he did
0: whine like a baby when I went around dude. I did seventies, like
2: and I, I, I don't regret my whining i feel like i was justified Um, we already
0: we already did a science fiction episode and most of our picks were like from the 80s from that middle area well i mean you got that covered we're good
2: we may that may be true but you know you set up a rule and then i don't know it just seems inconsistent but i i after substantial protesting i did choose some moments and i'm actually pretty happy with the picks i have um excellent so Yeah, this actually came pretty easily, which is maybe just a virtue of how much science fiction film we get nowadays.
0: Yeah, we're pretty spoiled for sci-fi
2: fans, (laughs) especially
0: the last couple of decades.
2: Mm -hmm. Especially depending on how wide your net is for what constitutes science fiction, because I mean, on a certain level, for example, like every Marvel film counts as science fiction some of them more than others, but like, like just in terms of like sorting genre based on like IMDb or letterboxed categories, if you just look at science fiction in the last couple decades, there's tons and tons of movies. But even if you start to narrow it to like hard science fiction or more uh, intellectual or heady science fiction, there's still quite a, a bit that's also fairly mainstream. Like thinking about the fact that like Arrival was like a pretty solid hit in its day is kind of remarkable because it feels like Mm. the general uh state of mainstream film is pretty dumbed down and and not adventurous and yet you know science fiction still has managed to find a fairly reliable foothold in the last uh decade or so yeah it feels like for
0: for a while there we had a pretty big run where there was like at least one major like science fictiony space Mm -hmm. movie that like arrival or the martian or something like that every single year we were pretty pretty lucky
3: mm-hmm.
1: well i mean we had the uh, cinema stand up in a year like that against the not cinema so to speak because <laughs> we've seen the, too much of the not cinema around right now and that's exactly what martin scorsese calls those movies. <laughs> the theme parks
2: <laughs> but even that like it's kind of a good thing in terms of like no matter what kind of science fiction fan you are there's films now that are scratching that itch which is kind of great um <laughs> So it was kind of a pick of the litter to choose moments for for this. I mentioned off mic, but I'll say again that for those who listened last week to our classic sci-fi episode, um, both of my picks this week mirror my picks from last week in ways that I'll explain. So I had a bit of a, a running theme through my movies. I don't know if anyone else did. So I
0: hope all you listeners ran out and watched that obscure Czechoslovakian.
2: Hey, it's fiction. on Criterion Channel. It's easy to access and it's awesome. Hey, you don't have to be familiar with the film. Just remember my picks. That's picks. what matters. Okay. I didn't pick another Czechoslovakian film. My my knowledge of that country's cinema is is quite low. So um we're pretty much at the end of it already, so
0: Yeah, mine is whatever movie you mentioned.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You loved it so much you don't even remember the title.
0: I'm actually very interested to see it, I'll be honest. (laughs) I think you'll
2: like it, uh, especially knowing how much of a fan you are of stuff like Sunshine. There's a lot of that DNA. Yeah, I'm pretty... I am definitely interested. Cool. But let's get into the now. All righty. Well, we'll start by going to the now being a movie from 13 years ago, which little, is Contagion. But it's a little bit too much now. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> too much, yeah, way, way too much now. <laughs> well, that's that's very much why I saw this as like a mirror. Like last week, my first pick was Destination Moon, which was speculative fiction now about I something that would become fact, which mm-hmm. is space travel to the moon. Contagion is a film that imagined how would the world react to a global pandemic? And I actually was going through on Letterboxd And I wrote a review for the movie where I say something like, you know, we haven't seen a a viral outbreak on this level, and then in parentheses, yet. And I wrote that in like July of 2019. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God. How did I, how was I so on the pulse? (laughs) Um, Which frightened me a little when I I went back and revisited it. I was like, what did I, what was I cooking? Um, But in any event, uh, I was thinking like, it's interesting because we kind of, had some fun with destination moon of like this movie that was looking at imagining what space travel to the moon would look like and kind of teeing what it got right and wrong yet here we have a a modern film that now we can look at in a similar light and i think a lot of in some ways it's <laughs> a relatively optimistic movie in as much as it imagines the world would be terrified of getting sick and the paranoia that would cause and in reality, we saw a lot of people were the opposite. They were too confident they would never get sick and they'd be fine. And instead of being desperate for the vaccine, we're desperate not to get it because it was against their rights, which, you know, is kind of sad that that movie is like, wow, that's the optimistic take on how this would go. Yeah, but, I'm pretty um, sure that my yeah. letterbox
0: re- last letterboxd review was like, Who would have thought that the the most unbelievable thing about this movie would be that people would just get the vaccine? (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Um, But that does lead to me, the thing that I think has held up the best about this movie, uh, which is not strictly related to the virus itself, but to the opportunistic and exploitative leeches who use it as an opportunity to boost their own platform. And how that's embodied in the character of Alan Crumwad, who's played by Jude Law, played brilliantly by Jude Law, who is this. The one thing that's dated about it is that he's playing like a blogger, which the idea of like a blogger having that much power specifically is that feels very rooted in like the the 2000s now. But you can definitely draw a direct line between him to podcasters, to YouTubers, to any uh, new media, unofficial, unsanctioned, I don't know, uh Uh, source of information on the internet who isn't backed up and has no credibility but has a massive audience and uses that audience for massive spreads their influence through that audience and we see that with him he for example tries to hawk a bogus cure in an attempt to rich enrich himself um and the moment that really sticks out to me is when You find out he's been bailed out from prison by his supporters and followers, the people who he has exploited and screwed over and, uh, you know, made their lives worse to make his own life better. And seeing the parallels to your Joe Rogan's or your Alex Jones's or any other cult of personality online who. uh, Dan Simpson's. Dan Simpson, eyebrow cinema. Yeah. Spreads (laughs) misinformation (laughs) uh and it does so in ways that it's not just spreading misinformation that is harmful but specifically the people who are most susceptible to that harm the people who are listening and are buying into it are also the ones who are flocking to their defense flocking to help them flocking to defend say joe rogan saying horse dewormer is a valid way to get rid of COVID. um and that part of the film is so chillingly still accurate and real and what's also disturbing is the film doesn't really have a solution for that. There's a there's hope in other aspects of the film. Like there's this sense at the end that like the humanity as a whole has overcome this chapter and will move forward, not affected by this virus. Matt Damon, as a sort of interpersonal character, finally has a moment to grieve, which he never has throughout the story, when there's finally enough normalcy that you can just let go. Uh, but this remains dangling as like. The, the dangers that this character represent, there's no solution for. And the film doesn't even attempt to have an answer to that. And I think that's all the more chilling because, yeah, we, we still don't. These sort of uh, cult of personality figures are uh, very much a problem that we don't have a solution for. And in many ways, the problem is exacerbated because bloggers never really had that much sway and influence. But like the Joe Rogan podcast is the most listened to podcast in the world. We're not even in the top 10, which is ridiculous. That's yeah, crazy. Um, right. But, you know, like the, the, the amount of sway that a lot of these groups have has gotten so much bigger since this movie came out and are so much more uh, apparent and influential that that aspect of the film is still positively chilling. So when we talk about, you know, assessing this film and what it gets right and what it gets wrong about uh, a, a viral outbreak, this to me is the thing it gets the most right
0: which is interesting because when contagion first came out i remember that his whole i like his whole part of the movie was one i was least interested in and i'm like okay who cares about the stupid blogger let's <laughs> let's get on with the virus stuff and now it's like cuz okay let's confession who once the pandemic hit who decided to throw this movie back in and just see i think <laughs> most i think a lot of film fans did and then i'm like oh okay they were actually pretty prescient with what's going on here and and i would not have expected like yeah that kind of voice being given a platform in a crisis like this but that is exactly what happened which is which is frightening
1: Mm -hmm. i think the one thing about the jude law character in uh, contagion that really uh that really he sticks with me is the fact that a lot of people would gear towards him, so to speak, because he represents what, uh, I think is your typical anti-government, uh, anti-government personality. And because, uh, everybody was saying at a certain point, Oh, you know what? We just want to, re- we just kind of want to rebel against, uh, <laughs> against the authority, the, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but they don't even realize that they're, uh, they're also putting themselves in harm's way just by just by putting a character like this on on such a huge platform too. And then what do you know? It's like we've seen, uh, as you pointed out, the Joe Rogan, Stephen Crowders of the world become some of the most widely listened to personalities on the internet, and people aren't even taking their words critically, which is especially frightening when you could when you note that um, they they all just bailed about a prison.
3: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and it's it's something too where like I I think the film also taps into somewhat not, not justifying but understanding why people listen because it's like especially in a crisis, especially in a crisis that is so in many ways invisible like a virus and you're just desperate for answers and because you know, science develops slowly and progress develops slowly like it takes time to have effective knowledge for what to do and how to counteract this and you have someone who is saying the truth even if it's bogus but they're saying it with confidence and it's an answer it makes sense that people in a desperate scary situation would latch on to it which again is what makes it so scary is like well what do you do then like how do you how do you counteract this because everything that makes you know the the sort of slow development of the science and of policy for dealing with this you can't counteract the instantaneous lies of charlatans and opportunists because you can't rush that process. Um, so again, like it's, it's that part of the film is, is so, um, is so, st- and even it's funny, even before like the, the COVID-19 pandemic, I remember revisiting the film earlier and thinking, man, that Jude Law character has really held up as like the sort of charlatans online have become so much more of a problem now than they were in 2011. Mm-hmm. Like, I think like Alex Jones was like active then, but he wasn't, he wasn't famous like he would soon become. He was most famous for being in Richard Linklater movies and small cameos. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I I love this character. Um, not love as in like he's a good person. I love him as a representation of an idea. And I think Jude Law's performance is maybe my favorite in the whole movie.
0: I feel like Jude Law is a little underrated because he, he often puts in like these kind of smaller role uh, performances and like usually knocks it out of the park. Like he's a pretty consistent actor. I think
1: I agree. I would also agree because uh, I think the first time I saw, I saw Jude Law in a role that really, really stuck with me was when I saw him in Steven Spielberg's AI. Yeah. And absolutely. I was like, what 12, 13 at the time when I first saw it. But then I, when I watch it now, I just, you know, I just think to myself, oh wow, this is like what easily one of the most tragic aspects of the movie aside from the one moment we all uh, we all circle back towards
2: <laughs> it's funny too cuz like i think he's got this thing where it's almost because he's so handsome and good looking that it's like oh yeah but he's best in roles like ai and this where he's playing weird little freaks <laughs> like it's kind of <laughs> counterintuitive to what he looks like cuz he's he's so sexy as a leading man but that's not really the roles that he's most adept at i guess the like, the closest i would think of is like for him thriving in that kind of part would be the talented Mr. Ripley and very pivotally he's not the main character like he he works at that because that's a side character so we can look at a different weird little freak and tom <laughs> 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 um yeah so um that to me this is the aspect of contagion that's aged the best and I don't uh I don't know what's to be done with it I think it's rather prescient though that the film picking up even then how dangerous this cult of personality and obviously cult of personality figures have existed long before the internet, but zeroing in on the ways in which the internet allows direct access and greater ease for building a massive audience uh, for that kind of figure.
0: Yeah. It is interesting how time and real events have added such an extra layer to, to a movie like this. That even like Soderbergh himself probably wouldn't have been able to predict. Mm-hmm. It makes it a bit of a richer movie, even.
1: <laughs> I uh, think that uh, watching something like that at the start of the pandemic, I remember when most of my classmates at Sheridan were uh, were watching uh contagion on netflix as soon as the first lockdown hit and then i ha- even remember one of my classmates said i, I don't want to watch something like this that hits way too close to home around now mm-hmm. <laughs> and then i think back about how uh how people have basically been absorbing a lot of this information completely uncritically because they think oh you know what this guy's uh, this guy is just saying stuff that uh, i wanted to I've been thinking for a long time without really taking it in the ramifications of what that would lead into. It's just for me, it's uh, I've always found it to be the most frightening aspect of the movie. But when you, uh, the way you noted it now, it's like, I want to look at, I want to watch the movie again, but hone in, especially on Jude law.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, and it is interesting uh, that's another thing you bring up as like, and we've circled is the re fascination with this movie in light of the pandemic and how yeah, like you you almost you would think on some level you wouldn't want to watch something like this, given it's like it's on the news. Um, but there was such a phenomenon of like people latching onto it. Like you could see it just measurably in Netflix's trending movies where it was like number one and then in the top ten for a long time there.
0: Well, I'm looking um, on my letterbox right now. It looks like I watched it April 12th, 2020. So that's pretty quick after. Yeah. <laughs> that's <within> a <laughs> like a month, not even a
1: month.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's interesting yeah. to think about like yeah. that fascination where it's like both this is the last thing I want to think about and yet also like I can't not think about it. So it's almost better to just face it fully and almost to like purge it out of my system.
1: Yeah, my, uh, I was gonna say my most recent watch of it was on uh, March 14th,
2: 2020. Oh, that's good. I want to say right when, like, it was like right before, right when the school I was at was starting to lock down. Like, I was running a little, like, very small film club with some friends, and Max Fonsito had also just passed away, so I was thinking of screening Avon Cito film and thinking like maybe the seventh seal. And then I thought it is maybe tempting fate to screen a film about a plague right now. (laughs) And so maybe we just won't meet and screen anything. And sure enough, a couple days later, it's like, everything's locking down. It's like, okay, yeah, I made the right call. (laughs) So, um, yeah. Uh, great film. One of my favorite Soderbergh films of, uh, certainly of the 2010s. I can't think of too many other, I mean, a lot of the other movies he made, I didn't see. I still haven't seen Logan Lockie, which people seem to really like.
1: Oh, you're telling me you, did, you didn't even go out of your way to see the laundromat?
2: <laughs> no, yeah, it's
3: true. No. <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot man. about that one. I, <laughs> that was awful.
1: I, uh, I was at the TIFF premiere of it, and <laughs> um, I think at least five people from my row walked out of it.
2: Wow. <laughs> interesting it is interesting did Soderbergh direct I think it was called Kimmy with Zoe Kravitz where it seemed like a film that was very much like set during the pandemic it wasn't about that but that was an aspect of it so Uh it does seem interesting that like he having then made a film speculating on what this would look like would then make another film that was set within that uh within that real time frame and and at least passively observing the effects of it. I haven't seen the film, so I can't speak to how it treats the pandemic, but I know that it is set during the pandemic and it doesn't really get addressed in dialogue, but it's, you see people wearing masks and sanitizing their hands and things like that. So the behaviors are all observed. So that's kind of interesting. It'd be like if the guy who made destination moon, then made another film about, I don't know, just like life in America in the early (laughs) seventies. But that guy was like, Hey, remember that time we went to the moon? I just kind of was passive. there. It's not quite the That's same point. point. <laughs>
3: mm, yeah, good like something.
2: Thank you. All right. I think we can probably jump over to Jamie, your first pick.
1: Okay, so uh, Dan, I know that... Okay, so I didn't actually get the note that uh, it was supposed to be from science fiction from the 2010s onward, so I said, you know what, I'll just go for anything from the 21st century, but uh, I uh, think... Uh you since you've been following me on twitter for quite a while it's like you already know that i have a strong affinity towards asian movies so that's exactly uh, why i chose the two films that i did and the first one that i chose was bong jun ho's the host um if i had to pick a moment for this one that really did stick out for me it would be the moment when gong do realizes that the whole presence of the monster is actually uh being covered up by the American government as the result of a virus that's been spread all across South Korea. And it's a very frightening moment for me because I think um we and remember how the movie starts because it starts off with uh this with an American scientist declaring, you know what? No, 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 I got I wanna dump this extremely dangerous uh this extremely dangerous substance into the Han river. And then you would think, and then you would think that um, in a moment like that, like they, uh, someone like that should be held accountable for just doing that so recklessly, but instead because the American government are like, Oh no, 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 we can't, we are, we're always the good guys everywhere. We're always the good guys everywhere. They're just covering it up by saying, Oh, no, the monster, it was the result of a virus. Definitely not something that we that we had on our hands. And then, what do you know? And then, what do you know? Like, so many people who were... Uh, so many people around the river at the time, I'm especially in that one moment where we first see the monster, like, they're all being... They're all being taken over. And it's a, a really... It is a really... Uh, really strong moment for me because Bong Joon-ho's films they've even when he's uh taking a uh very familiar genre concept it's like he's a very loud filmmaker this moment for me is like the representative of where I feel like he's at some of his loudest
2: yeah I mean it's also telling that like the uh speaking Mm -hmm. of being loud the American scientist at the beginning (laughs) yeah well the american actors in general are by far the most broad and over the top part of the movie like everything else is pretty like despite the fantastical (laughs) scenario is very like naturalistic and very grounded style except the english language characters um and then he he takes that to
0: extreme when he gets when he does oak jar right
2: yeah (laughs) and he really takes that
1: I was gonna say that the uh, the the doctor at the beginning is played by a very well established actor. I think it's Scott Wilson, if I remember correctly. And yeah, all yeah. he just all he just says is, "I hate dust more than anything. Just <laughs> dump all this into the. Han River.
2: <laughs> well, and it speaks too to the you know, uh, Bong Joon Ho's uh, ethos of his in all of his films that like you know the monster's scary sure and it is like a very well rendered and interesting monster i love that it's like it's it's a big monster but it's not like a city skyscrapers thing it's just <laughs> a little big to put it in i don't know kind of really simplistic terms i love that and i love the flavor it gives to the set pieces but the scary thing isn't really just the monster and it's also not like other people the way it is in a romero zombie movie it's the social systems that Empower some and then disempower others. So the revelation Mm -hmm. that like oh no 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 this isn't this was covered up that's scarier than just the monster. And certainly you see it in other aspects of the film, like the fact that the people who are most directly at risk of being killed are the poor Mm -hmm. and the the way that like the survival center that's. I don't remember exactly what it's called. It's like a disease.
1: Come- it's supposed to be like a disease control center, but right. it's not even really a disease control center.
2: <laughs> no, and and the imagery is almost reminiscent of like a homeless shelter, say, where it's just like rows of like people sleeping and uh, not great conditions for where they're supposed to be. Like there's there, it feels very deliberate that it's really commenting on the way in which systems uh, disenfranchise others, and the cover up ties into that perfectly.
1: Might I also take a moment to brag about having seen this movie on 35 mil a few years back?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I would if I had. So yeah, because uh,
1: <laughs> I could tell you right now when I saw this on a print, it was one of the most gorgeous prints that I think I've ever seen in quite a long time. And uh, it was around the time when uh, at, over at the Lightbox, they were hosting this entire retrospective that was that, that was called Summer of Soul. So mm. they screened films from Park Chan Wook. They've screened Lee Chang Dong, and a lot of the stuff that they brought in was, for the most part, especially from the really established names, were on film. So this was. Uh, so I said to myself, if they were going to be playing something like this, or or even Lady Vengeance on film, I have to be there day one. And what do you know? They were playing them on film. So nice. Yeah. <laughs> Had you seen this before? yes i have okay and uh the screening was right on my birthday too so i was like oh wow talk about uh talk about tiff uh, providing me a great birthday gift that day
2: yeah <laughs> yeah lucky you well good for you i saw this <laughs> on streaming one night oh <laughs> uh, i oh uh, well, yeah, i should too, probably
1: i should mention that uh, that day i actually did uh bong Jun ho 35 mil double
2: bill <laughs> what was the other one you saw what was the other mother oh nice oh yeah mother's really yeah. good that's one of my favorites <laughs> Um <laughs> yeah. it's interesting too that this is so far, and we'll see with, with Mickey 17 on the way where this will go. But like right now, this is the most uh I guess Octa 2, but like extreme expressions of him doing something really out there in genre where because it's even like I think Mother is the film he makes after this, which is a lot more sort of grounded and subdued and dealing just like with interpersonal character drama. Um I don't know. It's interesting to think about how him weaving back and forth between uh character dramas and then these more fantastical genre pieces and it'll be very interesting to see what he does with uh with Mickey 17 in that regard.
1: And uh I also think that uh even something like this definitely has a lot of those uh a lot of those uh tendencies that he's been uh, made, that he's carried throughout character dramas especially because we the first time we see uh, Gang Du, we are just introduced to him as like being this completely dumb guy who is trying to do nothing but the best for his family, even if uh, even if it's always gonna be uh, even if he's just such a clump, he's just he's a very clumsy all throughout the movie, and it's so easy to dismiss everything that he says because of that. And he's like Homer Simpson. Daughter, yeah, it's like even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even his and even his daughter is just completely embarrassed by him, especially in his first scene. Then, when he but then it's like what in this moment, you you have to think to yourself, you're thinking from his point of view how he's seeing that, how he's seeing everything, but you're also very worried that you're also worried that because because he's known to be a klutz, the the people that are basically covering this up would be using that to their advantage. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It also makes him like a very endearing character. Mm -hmm. I find, um, as I remember watching this and being surprised at a certain moment that I won't, I won't, I don't want to get into spoilers, but being like, Ooh, I'm way more emotionally attached to these characters, making it out. Okay. than I thought I was, Yeah. um, (laughs) And it's because it's funny, the film doesn't like it sort of subtly did that where it's it's not a subtle movie generally, but the way that it sort of uh, endeared me to its protagonist and to the supporting cast was done in a way that I wasn't fully aware of how invested I was in them until it started to look pretty hairy for them. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, I, I like these people. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but I remember having the same the same recollection of that, too, like. You you really did get tied to the characters, especially this father and, and daughter. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> did a very good job of that.
2: Yeah, good film. My favorite so far of Bung Jun Ho's like outright genre pieces. I like Snowpiercer as well, and I'm okay with Okja, but this is my favorite. Um, mm. uh, my personal
1: favorite is of course Memories of Murder. But well, yeah, in terms of okay. like
2: yeah. taking well, out fantastical stuff, it's well, oh, Parasite and it's like... Memories are the two Oh, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of like dealing with the outright fantastical so far, I think this is his best. Oh, yeah. But again, I'm I, very, agree mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. very excited for Mickey 17, which has <laughs> been delayed, which is good because there's been like no marketing for it. So like, yes, please <laughs> push it back.
0: When is it supposed to be? Do
1: uh, they have a date for it now? They have no date. I no, they think it's delayed.
2: It. Yeah, okay. well, it's because
1: so it, yeah. I want it.
2: <laughs> hey, maybe it'll play TIFF who knows maybe i'm sure you'll (laughs) brag about it if you get to see it again or 35 millimeter for jamie
3: (laughs) that's awesome
0: yeah good pick jane thank you (laughs) all right well i'm gonna move uh move us to 2014 and we're gonna talk about christopher nolan's interstellar um and so the moment I want to talk about is a line and it's kind of a sentiment, I guess that Matthew McConaughey's coop has when he's talking on the deck, drinking a beer with his father-in-law played by John Lithgow, um, in kind of a subdued role for John Lithgow. He's just kind of just hanging out. I don't know. He's not really goofy. He's just being an old man anyway. Um, so they're they're sitting around and they're talking about a meeting that he had with his kids school teachers. And of course, Interstellar is set like a couple generations from now where the earth is in a lot of trouble, right? The crops are dying and um I mean, people are running out of food. Um and so the school, the school system is kind of changed into this they've basically been accepting like the crazy we're really talking about like crazy conspiracies today aren't we (laughs) (laughs) but but the the textbooks are actually teaching that the apollo landings were fake now which is frightening that these conspiracy theorists that have all these ideas are the propaganda is working in, in this world because they don't want people thinking about like all these extra ideas they just want people's eyes on doing what they need to do to survive. And so Coop has a big problem with this. Uh he's he's a former engineer and a former pilot and um and he really has a problem with them teaching this garbage that's not true. And so they're having this conversation and one line he has always stood out for me from the moment that I watched this movie. Um it's a very well written line, very poetically written line, but it's also delivered in a way that you can see it just kind of casually coming up in conversation, at least with this particular character you can. And what he says is he's like, we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars, but now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. It's, it's a, it's a line that just hits me, I guess. Um, It kind of, captures that idea of this promise of scientific discovery versus like the practicality of real life. And, uh, so I, I teach grade nine science and we have a space section in, in that year. Um, and one of the things that always comes up is the idea of, you know, the financial benefits versus cost of space exploration and whether we should even be exploring space and, or whether we should be um, using those resources for other things. And, you know, I use I let the kids research and kind of come up to their own decisions because this is something, this is an, something that people can have vast opinions on. Um, but for myself personally, I'm like, yeah, let's go to space, baby. I love, I love the uh, whole idea of space exploration. And I, I get the argument that maybe we should be worrying about our problems here on earth. I get that. But at the same time, we can get so bogged down in that that it's it can be hard for us to move beyond and hard for us to progress. Um, whereas I do think that we need to have some of our mental energy and some of our ambition set towards set toward things like that. i I personally don't ever want to lose my wonder of science and thinking about the future and what humanity's future is going to be. Um, so I really feel connected with with Matthew McConaughey's character in this moment. I think it's a good thesis for what this movie is saying and what it's trying to do. And it feels like a line that comes like straight from Carl Sagan, the uh, the famous astrologer, who's who's also awesome. And you can definitely feel like this is very influenced by by everything that he says. So, Interstellar, great movie
2: it's a great line. I seem to recall it being in one of the trailers and before I'd seen the film hearing that and just sparking such a like, like obviously I was interested in seeing the film before, but that really was like such a compelling sales pitch. Cause it is such a cutting line about the sort of, um, clash between the sort of highest of high ambitions and then the, the, uh, material problems that pull those ambitions down. Um, one of the things I find interesting is to think about what Nolan has made since then and with especially Oppenheimer, but also I think you could argue with Tenet to an extent and seeing these films that are kind of the flip side to this idea of scientific ambition in, the, in this context is very lofty and very wondrous and beautiful. And certainly the film as a whole celebrates that as an, as an as an ethos and an ideology. And his more recent films have... I have shown the opposite, which I don't think speaks to a change in his beliefs per se, so much as just a examination of that idea of scientific ambition, taking it to its logical other endpoint. point. Um, but it is interesting to think about the sort of spectrum that even just between the interstellar and Oppenheimer, those films run in terms of uh, approaching this idea. Um, and I will quickly say to the idea of uh, spending on space exploration. I certainly get a lot of the arguments about why it's in some ways wasteful or unnecessary. And I'm not entirely unconvinced. Like I'm I'm not entirely I kind of see that I kind of agree with it to an extent. But also, yeah, I mean, the dichotomy that like, well, we should be spending that on other things, it kind of frames it as if if we weren't spending stuff on NASA and space exploration, we could solve these problems, which is not really true. It's also mm-hmm. like if if funding for space programs went away instantly, that money would not be allocated towards, you know, uh, feeding the poor and, and uh, redistributing power throughout the world. And like, that's just not, <laughs> that's not what the decision is. So that's probably worth bringing to bear. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic line though. And I do like that you point out that it's written and delivered in such a way that even though it is like this, kind of thesis statement it doesn't feel too writerly in the moment it feels like a natural extension of these two in their conversation um which is nice people sometimes take issue with nolan's writing and not without fair points i think but this is a good example of his dialogue uh speaking to his core themes in very overt ways but also in very well integrated ways yeah
1: yeah um I have to admit it's been such a long time since I last saw Interstellar. I think the last time I saw it was maybe uh back during its initial release, so <laughs> wow. So I don't so yeah, I don't have the I don't have the strongest memory of it, but uh I've always been uh I've always been a little confused by the argument that Nolan's writing doesn't sound human, especially because a moment like this show proves otherwise because yeah. i i mean i get the i would get the argument if it was with something like tenet which is most which i uh <laughs> i mean i know people have uh i know people are fervently defending it but uh because a lot of the dialogue in tenet does sound very expository it's <laughs> it doesn't quite hook people in the same way that something like this one did yeah. and uh I um I remember thinking I remember thinking when I uh, when I look back at a moment like that in Interstellar, it's just uh, you just can't help but respect at the very least respect the sort of ambition that Christopher Nolan is pushing for,
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. which is something else the line speaks to is just this idea of like having ambition, you know, yeah. not being willing being willing to settle. I mean. You know, it's interesting to think, too, because, like, especially within, like, the blockbuster sphere specifically, where there's so much pressure to not make, you know, thoughtful, intelligent movies that can be thematic and complex and and uh, and formally adventurous and ambitious, that he has been one of the lone voices within the mega-budget sphere to keep that going. You can see a line like this really speaking to not just the philosophy about... Uh, scientific curiosity but to artistic adventure and risk you know to think about his career as like his place among the stars and not among the dirt which is maybe a, <laughs> a harsh way to describe other blockbuster <laughs> films and I don't think he feels quite that extreme about it um, yeah Jay, but I mean, it does, just so you know his Dan,
0: Dan will try to basically find a way that every movie that every filmmaker makes is about their filmmaking process in some way. I mean, that's really good at doing that.
2: I if, if the shoe fits, you know, every movie is about movies and all of life can be explained with pro wrestling metaphors. I fervently believe both of these things all right great now let's
1: uh (laughs) i need to i need to send off a lot of money to terry gilliam to make him to get him to make a movie about his creative process then
2: oh there you go
1: (laughs) i still haven't uh, seen
2: i mean isn't that man of la mancha documentary kind of that i haven't seen it so (laughs) i haven't
1: seen it either so i also haven't even seen the finished version of man who killed don quixote me neither (laughs) um but uh gilliam fell off i think is fair to
2: say i'm like i'll get to it eventually (laughs) it's not a priority. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, I uh, what I will say, hey though, is uh, when you talk about how Nolan is one of the few voices that's really uh, that really stands out in this current present day blockbuster scene, the fact that he's still uh, shooting all of his stuff on film stock is something that I have a whole load a whole load of respect for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still remember very vividly being very mad at my parents for uh, taking me to a different theater to see Dunkirk because I remembered wanting to see it on <laughs> IMAX 70mm at the time.
3: <laughs> That's fair.
1: I didn't. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see Interstellar on 70mm, but uh, maybe I should hold off a rewatch until then.
2: <laughs> hey, I mean, you're you're in enough of a sort of locus for good experience that if you wait long enough, I'm sure you'll get a chance. Yeah,
1: yeah. that said, uh, every time I have seen Oppenheimer in theaters, it has been on 70 millimeter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's any film projection in a theater in my city.
1: Oh, that's way too bad.
2: It's digital all the way, baby. Boom.
0: We've got a a film IMAX in Regina, so it's still a couple hours away from me. Yeah. Uh, And I was really hoping that Interstellar would be playing there. They didn't play it, which is too bad because they had played uh, Dark Knight Rises and we saw Dark Knight Rises there and that was awesome. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, in two years, I'm going to watch Interstellar here. They never (laughs) did it. They
2: never showed it. No. So disappointing. No. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I am glad you you pointed out this line. It is interesting too to think about the the whole aspect of it like the them being taught that the moon landings were faked because it is like <laughs> that's one detail in the film too that like people talk about like Nolan over explaining things, but that's just kind of there and then it's like left and it's like yeah. wait, go back. <laughs> Can we talk about this? Um I
1: also think it's really funny to have uh, to complain about Nolan over explaining in especially um when uh, you think about how oppenheimer's ethos is built up that whole movie kind of needs the over explaining too so <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. i don't i don't think it's nearly as much of a criticism as other yeah. people
1: i don't yeah,
2: have it really neither, neither um, do i and tenet he's like all right you think i explained too much fine <laughs> oh, you get okay. nothing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't even think about it, jerk. Like, good for you, Chris. (laughs) I respect you getting it all out. Although that's interesting to think about too, because his movies, like Interstellar represents sort of the peak of like hopeful Nolan. And then since then, like Dunkirk, there's an element of hope to the end because it's a story ultimately of survival, but it's also a story of defeat. They they live to fight another day, but they also are, you know, are fleeing. And the final beat of the film is this weird quiet moment of like, like there's almost like this disharmony between the, the brief moment of Soaring Score and the narration and then there's just the shot of I think Harry Styles looking just kind of ambivalent and it's like that's a very interesting note to end this on and then Tenet is his in some ways least human story very deliberately I think and then Oppenheimer is like just shrouded in in darkness and despair in a lot of ways it's, it's, it's curious to think about in some ways I'm not sure what that maybe says if if it's his if it's a growing pessimism on his part or something within it, something changed his own worldview, or if he's just for whatever reason right now, interested in exploring um, these darker sides, because the dark Knight movies are also fundamentally very hopeful despite being the dark comic book movies. So maybe he's just like, all right, I've got hope out of my system. Now it's time for despair. <laughs> um, But it's an interesting transformation because yeah, this movie and this line is like peak hope in Chris Nolan's work.
0: Yeah. There's certainly a romanticism to of the kind of writing that's going on here and i think mcconaughey is like just the kind of the guy to deliver it right Mm -hmm. you want you want the guy from the lincoln car commercials saying (laughs) these lines that's the lincoln
2: lawyer himself (laughs) who better than yeah he is sort of like he's well suited i think it's part of why the line feels less writerly is because he delivers it in such a way that it feels like salt of the earth wisdom when it's really Mm -hmm. not that but his framing makes it so yeah
0: and i mean he's got other lines like this too like one where he says like humanity was born here but we were never meant to die here which kind of has the same sentiments i like the other line better the other line triggers me a little bit better but
2: Mm -hmm. well the other line is more widely applicable like to a filmmaking metaphor you can't really do that with the dying one Humanity was born here. It was never meant to die here. And that's why I directed Dunkirk. Like that doesn't really no it's
0: about it's about him switching studios. He was oh, talking about his old oh, studio.
2: It all connects. You Did it. Yeah. <laughs> that was his final memo to Water Brothers. <laughs> see, this is why I do it. Ian, see how fun that is? You feel yeah. good when you you drop one of these metaphors. <laughs> like, ooh. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but <laughs>
0: Yeah, I uh, I watched so I watched this scene for obviously for the show because I wanted to freshen up on it. And if it wasn't such a long movie, man, I would have I would have just sat there and watched the whole thing. I was I was really getting drawn back in. I'm gonna have to rewatch this sucker like ASAP. So good, you are too, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) Seventy millimeter or not, you got to give it another go. It's been too long.
1: Yeah, when uh, okay. I know that the lightbox has played it on 70 millimeter in the past. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that they bring it back because I missed it back when they did the sev- when
2: they did that on 70 mil. <laughs> I'm a bit more, I mean, still like widely thumbs up would highly recommend. I'm probably a little bit more cool on the movie than you, but uh it is like just an utterly compelling watch. Like Nolan, one mm-hmm. Even his lesser films, I think, are just so compelling to watch. Like, Dark Knight Rises is a fine example. It's like, that's a messy movie, but it's my mess and I love it. <laughs>
3: yeah. So... yeah.
2: Well, um, I suppose I'll jump to my next pick, which is not a hopeful film, particularly. Is <laughs> David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. So the first film, Contagion, came to me pretty quickly when I thought about like, okay, like speculative fiction about something that became fact. But then the second pick was trickier because the main reason I wanted to talk about Icary XB1 was this idea of it being a science fiction film that was ahead of its time. Uh, and that's hard to gauge when you're dealing with modern films because obviously I don't know what is ahead of its time because we're not really going to know that until we have enough historical distance to evaluate that. Like, I could have chosen something maybe from the earlier 2010s to be like, oh, this turned out to be, but that felt like cheating, felt like if I'm going to do this, I should try to pick something that's that's uh, not had its chance to be proven yet, but speculate anyway that it's going to be ahead of its time. Or at the very least, thinking the other reason I wanted to do Ickery XB1 was this idea of putting it in the context of other science fiction films from this era and what it was doing relative to all of those other movies feeling so advanced. And I thought... Crimes of the Future, which is in some ways maybe feels like a backwards choice because it's not made by a young maverick filmmaker at the cunning edge. It's made by an old hand at this point, a legend of, of the craft and of the art coming back to it after a long absence. But I was specifically thinking about sort of body horror, and body horror specifically in the realm of science fiction, how Cronenberg is by no means the inventor of body horror as a concept, but he certainly defined it in film and so much of what we think of as cinematic body horror can be traced back to Cronenberg. Um, But also as a concept, body horror is way more prevalent and mainstreamed in a lot of uh, media, not just horror uh, now than it was in his time. Like I think about like Rick and Morty, for example, which I haven't watched in a very long time, admittedly, but routinely would have grotesque body uh, disfigurement and dysmorphia and all this grotesque visuals and even has like a, a, an episode where, science experiment goes wrong and like most of the world gets mutated horribly and Rick's like overlooking and he says something to the effect of, well, Morty really Cronenberg the world up, didn't we? So this idea of it becoming like it's lost a certain affect because it's become almost memed into into meaninglessness. And I was thinking about that with Crimes of the Future because it exists in this world of like weird body performance and surgery that's sort of an art form within this universe. And the scene but it's also a lot more like especially within the film and how Cronenberg frames it it's a lot more clinical and detached. You can tell it's made by an older guy. He's not really interested in in shocking you or coming up with the grossest and most outlandish visual. And to that point, the grossest and most outlandish visual is what I've put, termed in the Google doc, the eye dancer, which is this woman who's got her mouth and eyes sewn shut and her 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 body's are her body's covered in like these ears and she does this interpretive dance. These characters are watching and it's the most like striking, bizarre, gross visual in the movie. And it's also called out in the text as being shallow, uh, performative and meaningless. One of the lines in the film that I really love is the ears don't even work. It's just aesthetic. Um, Mm -hmm. And thinking about that as Cronenberg's commentary on the state of body horror. And some people have, have looked at that as maybe like, a, maybe shot at uh, um, Tatane, which I think he said he likes, so I don't think that's what it is. But I do think it reflects the the nature by which body horror has lost its sense of purpose, that you have filmmakers or uh, creators and other mediums who are certainly interested in making things that look gross, that are, are inhuman or uncanny, and are trying to one up themselves and one up what's been done in terms of creating the grossest, most disturbing, you know, um, body horror they can think of. And yet, because of that sort of arms race, it's become meaningless and empty. It doesn't actually spark that uncanny horror in you. It doesn't, you know, get to the sort of psychological rawness and unnerving qualities that Cronenberg's films had at one point. And this idea of body horror being something diluted, so um that's my moment i think just the how cronenberg uses this as a potential not that it needs to be read as a literal sort of shot at other creators it doesn't need to be quite that literal or quite that mean spirited but i do think it speaks more generally to the dilution of body horror from being something psychological into being something that's merely aesthetic and without um without real meat behind it and i'm curious as time moves forward and and more science fiction and horror stories Develop body horror ideas further and in different directions, where Crimes of the Future will sit within that paradigm.
0: So you're saying he's like reflecting on his career again. (laughs) See, Jamie, I told you. It all comes back to that. Well, not (laughs) no, but I like what you're saying. It's more of like he's reflecting on his influence, which is I think is actually really interesting. Mm
1: Hey, well, yeah. I mean that's every uh, that's the sort of thing that every uh, Canadian filmmaker should aspire to. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, thank you, Cronenberg, for that.
2: <laughs> well, and it's also it's specifically like it, not even necessarily as a metaphor for filmmaking, but more as like a commentary on, you know, like on aesthetics and if something is is speaks to a a greater fear or psychological underpinning or uncanniness, or if it's just fashion, you know, the ears are just for show. They don't actually work. Like that line is what really sort of claws in my brain of like, no, there's definitely something deliberate and, and, and uh, worth fixating on here in terms of um, just commenting on the nature of that art. And I wonder how it must feel for, you know, I, not that I expect Cronenberg's watching Rick and Morty, but if he sees that clip and he sees Cronenberg used as a verb in that sense, what does he think of that? You know, is he flattered by the influence he's had or to, does he see humor in it or is he a little bit insulted of seeing, no, this isn't what I do. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's, it gets you to think about like, and it also, I like it because it kind of forces you to think about like, well, what, because I like body horror a lot. but It's like, what what do I really like about this? You know, is it just the gross visuals? Do those mean less because they've become so reproduced in so many other facets? Uh, is there a meaningful difference between you know your video drones and your The Flies than there is the the sort of the uh, spoofs of that or uh, reiterations of that in more modern contexts and more mainstream contexts? Am I just elevating Cronenberg because I think it's you know it's art? and that other stuff is commerce and entertainment, or is there actually something, some quality that distinguishes, uh, Cronenberg stuff. And I think there is a quality that distinguishes Cronenberg stuff. And it's best described as weird sex pervert material, which really distinguishes him.
0: (laughs) So, okay. So his son has started making movies. Yes. And he's kind of going down this very similar path. So, Do you think he's... So the other thing is, is we have another very prominent filmmaker this year that came out with a movie that a lot of people seem to think is kind of a commentary on his his son following
2: in his path. I wonder if there's something there. Yeah. See, the thing too is like, because with with Boy and the Heron, because I know that's the other one you're referring to, if you read it as being Hayao's commentary on Goro, I actually think it's kind of... Sweet in its own way. It's him accepting my son I, is not me, and that's okay.
0: I, I don't think it is. By the way, I think it's a lot deeper than that. But. I, I think
2: it's, and I think that's yeah. it's. Sim- it's too simple to say that's all it is. But if that's an aspect of the film, to me, the subtext is, yeah, my son is not me. My son will not carry out my legacy. That's okay. My son can build his own life and be his own person. And trying to be me is a mistake. Which is really, it's basically the ending of Inception, the end of the Killian Murphy arc. It's a very nice sentiment. I was sentiment. just thinking
0: that actually, as you um, said that.
2: But if we read <laughs> "Crimes of the Future" as being a subtweet about Brandon Cronenberg, it's a lot that less nice. I don't know um, if that's
0: the case. I've never seen any Brandon Cronenberg stuff, and I've heard like he's
2: he's uh, he's trying. <laughs> actually, okay. That's all
3: I can say.
1: <laughs> I've only
2: seen Infinity Pool. I haven't seen Possessor. Um, I like Possessor quite a bit, but uh, yeah. for the
1: most part, I think Brandon is just
2: trying, but not so much. Maybe there. My,
1: maybe I'm not off bases. I <laughs> you might
2: well be onto something because the other thing with Brandon's movies, at least based on Infinity Pool, is there like I'll put it this way: you can tell Crimes of the Future is made by an old man. You can tell Infinity Pool is made by a young man. That's not strictly a bad thing, you know. There's a lot of value in young filmmakers who are eager to show off in some ways but it is much more like excited to show you its weird gross visuals and it's uh you know to indulge in the the pervy sex aspects of the story in a way that I don't want to say feels immature per se because frankly that's too it's too offbeat and on its own to really gauge in that way but it does feel like the work of a younger person and you can certainly read it as as being more aesthetic than what David Cronenberg has done and is doing with crimes especially because with infinity pool while there is clearly a very uh sort of insisted upon subtext about like the idle rich and leisure culture and the exploitation of the of third world countries to accommodate rich white people it's also pretty on the nose and doesn't feel as quite as like thoughtfully combined with the body horror in a way that you get with like a with with Cronenberg senior um so there's definitely an element to that. If nothing else, I'm sure Brandon has watched the film and been like, You trying to tell me something, Dad? <laughs> like they must have thought about that. Um I'm pretty sorry did. <laughs> but to me again, like I, I don't think it's the other thing too is like I'm saying this is like we don't necessarily have to agree with the character's dismissal of, oh well, it's just you know, it's just kish, it's just uh the ears don't really work. Like that's what a character says in the movie. It doesn't necessarily mean the film feels that way about that image and certainly like the image is disturbing it's probably one of the images in the film that has stuck with me the most um which in a way makes me think of it almost like a birdman thing where you've got that scene where you know his alter ego's saying like the people want blood they want carnage and he starts to give you a bit of a set piece and it is really good it is exciting you kind of want to see more of it so in some ways, it's maybe also a critique of the audience, potentially. It's asking, like, well, why is it that, you know... And maybe it's also a commentary on what Cronenberg thinks people expect of him. Because he did have that moment in, with a history of violence and Eastern Promises, and especially with The Dangerous Method, where he was moving away from the body horror and grotesque visuals, and the sort of horror elements of his early work, some of those were maintaining, like a history of violence especially is pretty gross. <laughs> in terms of, you can definitely tell it's made by Cronenberg when you get to some of those expressions of violence, but he starts to find the, those same thematic interests in more grounded material, less horrific material, less violent material, and by the time you get to a dangerous method, it's all psychological. And so he started to push away from the types of movie making and images he was most famous for so maybe in some ways this is him making a comment about like i've outgrown that i can still do it look at this weird ear lady i can still (laughs) make this stuff but that's not really where my head's at anymore because the aesthetics to me are shallow now they don't interest me like they used to
0: he's more interested in his role on star trek discovery
2: yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, he <laughs> is had a he taste for his focuses now. How, uh, how interested is he in uh, that compared to his uh role as the uh as the Italian mobster in To Die For?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, he is in that. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say Jason X gave him the the bug for acting, but it was it was To Die For first. <laughs> Man, imagine going from To Die For to Jason X. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This I I was gonna say, his cameo into the dieport is so is so funny too because he's like he's like, Hey, Suzanne, is that the famous Suzanne Stone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <then> it's, like,
2: <laughs> it's also just like the Jason X one, it makes sense too, because you know, like if you know that the director of that film was a Canadian special effects artist, so he'd worked with Cronenberg a lot. So I'm sure it was like mm-hmm. friend favor for a friend. Jason X more broadly, like horror film the productions in Canada, like it makes sense that the Canadian horror guy would be there when he shows up at the end of to die for. It's like, what is going on? Why are you here?
1: <laughs> That's how I found out that the movie was actually shot in Ontario. or something. <laughs> yeah. That'd confirm it. <laughs> <laughs> but um. uh, I will, I'll say, um, okay. Shall I brag again? <laughs> I was at the, I was at the Canadian premiere of crimes of the future and uh well uh i all not so not only was i in the same space as david cronenberg but hang on i'm just gonna go pull it up right here uh sorry you y'all who are listening can't see this but i'm just pulling up my video
2: drone but (laughs) oh nice yeah signed by i remember you sharing that on socials and seeing that that is really nice
1: Although uh, I I can't really use this one anymore because I have the 4K, so... (laughs) That's 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 perfect, though, because that's just for
2: display now.
1: Yeah, I'm not even... (laughs) I'm not even gonna sell this one or anything up until uh, <laughs> up until I uh, get Cronenberg to sign the 4K. <laughs> then you
3: sell the Blu-ray. It's all upscaled. Nice.
1: <laughs> awesome. You should you
0: should tell him that too. Be like, you know, I got the Blu-ray signed for you, but I've kind of upgraded now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sign this hey, one man. instead. Hey, I mean, maybe next time he's at the light box, I'll uh, I'll hit. I'll hit him up.
2: Yeah, you should. Ask him if Crimes of the Future was a subtweet about his son. They're like, just you can just tell me. I won't tell nobody. Is this you making fun of your kid? It's okay. Yeah oh man and then when you meet brandon at screen you be like you won't believe the shit your dad said about you
1: well uh i have been in the same room as brandon at one point there you go
2: i'm not gonna tell you uh i'm not gonna tell you how that went you need to make them fight that's where this is going <laughs> or maybe they both make like competing films from the same script which i have always wanted to see that like happen because that'd be fun not with like Cronenberg specifically but just in general i like that idea
1: oh i'd be i would be down for that <laughs>
2: Alrighty. Um, nice. Yeah, I, I assume, Ian, you've not seen this because I know you're... Would it surprise you it that
0: uh, to... it's actually in my collection? It is not. I was no. going to say, no <laughs> I've never way. seen it. I've never seen it.
2: <laughs> I would believe more that it was in your collection somehow, but you hadn't seen it than you'd seen it just because it just... But then you're so... Uh, you have so many rigid rules when it comes to your shelf that yeah, I don't I buy like my... how would that get there. What if it was gifted to you, though?
0: I would watch it and then make the decision if it stays
1: gotcha. or
2: goes. I respect that.
1: All right. I'm going to mail you the 4K of Crimes of the Future. <laughs> signed? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? It'll
0: be signed by Jamie.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, Jamie, why don't we head on to your next pick?
1: Alright, so uh, my next pick is actually, I think, the most recent movie out of uh, out of everything that I think all of us have selected. It's actually uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and uh, okay, I feel like there are so many moments that I could have went with in this movie, because it is a movie about a whole lot of random stuff happening all at once, I mean, it's in the title, like i could have went from the moment where uh where Evelyn sees uh, jobu Tupaki for the first time and it turns out oh it's actually just her daughter i could have easily went with the hot dog finger scene because everybody everybody was joking on about how stupid that is in concept but i love it but personally i went with the first scene where we get to see alpha wayman fight it fighting in action <laughs> <laughs> The reason I uh, I selected this moment is because one it is such a bizarre moment just in just by pure concept because all he does is like what he just takes a uh, he just takes a piece of chapstick and then just chews on it and suddenly he and suddenly he now get he, you he know he now can do kung fu <laughs> but also I uh the reason why I selected this moment is because it's just the chore, just the fight choreography in this moment is just exhilarating. Like I've never seen, and i I've never seen like an action movie that that actually um no that actually knows how to make the most out of uh that knows how to make the most out of such <laughs> such beautiful fight choreography, especially in an American movie recently. Like, but i have trying to think. I mean, have we even seen a lot of martial arts movies recently that would uh, that would compete with this? That specifically from America. Can
2: you think of any? Uh, maybe the John Wick movies, but it's really maybe. more with combining the gunplay with yeah. that. So yeah. it's yeah, kind that, of a different animal. That uh, that doesn't count. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like there's not there's not too many off the top of my head. I can't know. Yeah, how about
1: you, Ian? No, I don't. Top of my head, no. Yeah, exactly. But also. The fact that it's just such a it is such a fluid moment and uh given the given the film's budget, like let me okay, I'm just gonna pull up Wikipedia again to uh to check how much this movie costs. Yeah, I'm gonna go pull up my I'm gonna do go full on James <laughs> Somerton moment here. <laughs> no, I'm gonna guess 60 million. Uh it was actually uh between 14
2: and 25 million. So oh, wow. See, I so... way overshot. <laughs> like, that's insane. Yeah, mm.
1: I um the but also oh, I just think that it's a it's a moment that really emphasizes like the many possibilities of what could really be done in a movie that's just trying to be
2: about everything, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it speaks to how like doing mm-hmm. all of those things so well at such a high level that it's not r- strictly a martial arts movie, but when it dips its toes into being a martial arts movie, it's going to deliver. At a high level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about two. like the main thing that stood out for me rewatching the scene uh, this morning. One was that it was on YouTube. So at the end of the video with a a, a little um, window came up annotation for another video to click on, which was a fight scene from Morbius, which I was like, I'm good. Uh-oh. Thanks. <laughs> but uh, specifically is how uh, women's fanny pack is so essential to the fight. Uh, one, because it has a very Jackie Chan esque energy of like making action out of any object like Mm -hmm. this is a part of his attire that he has in the scene let's think of every permutation we can do with it that will involve action and choreography and making it happen which is just the ingenuity of that is always so fun to see Uh, but also because of how much it speaks to the subtext with his character because he looks like an unconventional action star. He lo- like he's he's an older man for starters, but he also is like a dorky looking man. He's got these you know this sweater and these big thick uh, pants and the fanny pack, especially where it's like this does not <laughs> look like a cool man. And yet he, he just looks um, like such a
1: dorky dad. <laughs>
2: exactly, and it makes it one in the moment very funny when he yeah. is then dispatching these dudes with the skill and grace of a Jackie Chan, and also dressed the way he is makes it all the more fun. <laughs> Um, but also because it, I think it speaks to something the film will talk about later where uh, when they're doing the sort of Wong Kar Wai riff where he has that line about, you know, you think my innocence is a weakness, but it's a strength. That's yeah. how I survive in the world. And by the same token, this is doing something similar where it's like these dorky elements of me are not a weakness, nor are they something I need to outshed to be like a badass uh, kung fu ass kicker. I can be <laughs> those things. And I can be this dork and those things are not actually in conflict or contradictory. Um, so in I the like moment that. it's funny, but when you put it in the whole context of the film, it's actually speaking to that beautiful truth that he can be both things at once and how great that is. Oh yeah. yeah. I like that
1: a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, mo- you pointing out that uh, him using the fanny pack has the sort of Jackie Chan-esque as the sort of Jackie Chan-esque aspect to it. Well, uh, in uh, their Criterion Closet video, I mean, Daniel Kwan did say that he did pick out Police Story, of course. But he did say, <laughs> of course, yeah. I was watching this movie. I've been watching this movie for at least a good chunk of my life, and you can really, you can really tell. You can really tell that. But also, I remember reading somewhere that uh, Daniel Kwan initially wrote that role for Jackie Chan, which is why Kihui Kwan is. The- he has the same hairstyle as Jackie Chan from that per- from his peak period, so to speak. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Makes sense. That does and, check out,
2: yeah. You
1: know. <laughs> but at the same time I am it's like, but at the same time, just watching Kihui Kwan in action, it's like, yeah, this is I could just as easily see him doing a lot of Jackie Chan stuff around now if he took, if he was if he was still as um it was still as active an actor as he was within the period where he decided to take a break from appearing on screen. (laughs) Well, it will be interesting
0: to see where his career goes now, because now that he's in the limelight again, he's Mm -hmm. I'll probably start taking on more stuff and, and have more roles open to him. So
2: I hope so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, I was also going to say that uh, out of all the uh, performances in the movie, I mean, I I mean, I could have easily went with Michelle Yeoh or Stephanie Hsu, Jamie Lee Curtis, but ki hui kwan for me he it's moments like this that make him my favorite that make it my favorite performance in the movie and it's one of the best oscar wins i could think of in recent memory too
2: mm-hmm. yeah and there's something else too with the fact that like especially going in it was like the surprise like you know michelle yo being amazing in it was like not to take anything away from michelle yo because she is like exceptional yeah. But it's it's a movie that is in many ways built around her and she's a star. So you're kind mm-hmm. of expecting, you know, like I didn't I don't think I would have been able to guess before seeing it that she would have won an Oscar for it just because it seemed like such a non Oscar movie. out. which is funny. Oh, I, rem- shaked
1: out. oh I remember <laughs> when uh, a lot of my friends are predicting that it would possibly be an Oscar nominee. And then what do you know? Now it's a best picture. Winner. I thought to myself, I thought well, hearing these, it's like you guys are out of your mind. They're never going to nominate <laughs> stuff like this.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, especially because like, what, what, this is a movie where we have a guy jumping on a butt plugs and then yeah. that, uh, that's the sort of thing that the Oscars would go for. Well, apparently now it is. <laughs> well, and
2: this is the thing between this and parasite. Like you got to think not just because they're great movies, but because they're so atypical of what has been considered historically as like an Oscar movie. That perhaps the old rules of what we thought were an Oscar movie are less set in stone now than they were 30 years ago um but the 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 reason I bring this up is because you know uh Quan's performance being so good I was excited to see him in the movie but I was not <laughs> fully prepared for him to be so spectacular in it so there's this like and this scene is also plays into that where it's like it's such a reveal in the moment as well that it's it, it there's something so exciting about that. Again, not to take away from Michelle Yeoh, because she's brilliant and she does great work in the film, but to be so surprised by a performer and who, you know, like a lot of people I had taken for granted, like I saw him in movies that I liked when I was a kid and that was it. Really movie because I don't like the Goonies was just Temple of Doom. But, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. I-, I thought of him as like that role and, and didn't know the context or everything else. So be- seeing him delivers such a showcase role was so exciting in a way that's unique in the film
0: yeah, i gotta say jamie when you were explaining when like when you're describing the scene yeah i got this mental image in my head of <laughs> of Keanu reeves waking up out of the machine being like i know kung fu like Haikwan taking a bite of the chapstick
2: me too.
1: <laughs>
2: now there's a buddy movie.
1: No, uh, okay, uh, when are uh, okay? If the Daniels are gonna listen to this, when are you guys gonna team up with the Wachowskis? We need the Everything Everywhere Matrix.
2: Uh, That's true. Right.
1: crossover. Just the <laughs>
2: ultimate sibling movie. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> two brothers, two sisters. Or oh, they're not. They're not brothers. They might have their brothers, the Daniels, but. They're not the brothers, actually. tend
0: not no. to have the same name. I know, but <laughs> like,
2: well, t- it's like Mario, you know, Mario, Mario, and Luigi yeah. Mario. In my head, the Daniels are brothers because, like, every other yeah. like duo directors have been siblings Lana and Lily Wachowski, the Coens, um, the, the Safties. It's weird that I'm like, no, 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 you're like honorary brothers.
1: It's like edging and, and Christian shut.
2: in WWE, like, they're not brothers, yeah. but they're brothers. Yeah,
1: these guys are just two dudes named Daniel who uh, first made a movie about a farting corpse. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, t- going on to make this, uh, <clears throat> which I'm not. I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge Swiss Army Man fan. So it's why at the, it's why when I first saw ads for Everything Everywhere, I was my expectations were a little bit tempered compared to everybody else I knew. But this movie, I'll uh, just took uh, whatever I what. All my worst fears from Swiss Army Man just blew them completely out of the water. <laughs>
2: nice, nice. Well, speaking of Daniels, since they're you know they're not actually brothers and they're only tethered by both having the same first name, y'all get into a fight and you need a replacement, Daniel. I'm right here. <laughs> I'm not very talented, but you know I'm fun to hang out with. But
1: maybe um, the other multiverse Daniel. That's true. It, it could be uh, could be
2: the fighter that they need. <laughs> There's a version of me that's talented. And there's I'm like, not him, but he's out there.
1: Oh, there's also another version of Daniel that ha- that co-directed this movie with with Daniel Kwan, maybe?
2: Maybe? Who knows? Who knows? The <laughs> only way to find out for sure is if you work with me. So. <laughs> I got nothing to do. <sighs>
0: <laughs> nice. Yeah, Good pick, Jamie.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
0: OK, well, I'm going to I'm going to move to my last pick, which is 2019's Ad Astra, uh, directed by James Gray and starring Brad Pitt. Um, This is a movie that's kind of dropped off the radar. What would you? Like, I mean, you don't really hear people talking about it much at all. I don't know the people were talking about it much when it came out. Well, that's
2: there. what I was going to say. Like it was first of all, in our um, you and I, our circle of friends, this one was like. Hated, um, yeah. which I never understood. Not by us, no, I love this movie. Uh, all the more so because I, I don't think I'd even seen a trailer. I just was like, oh, there's like the science fiction movie playing, and I really like James Gray's movie, The Immigrant. So I'll go see this, and then was like weeping in the theater <laughs> a couple hours later. So that was that was fun. Um, yeah, this James Gray's whole career seems to be making really good movies that just never quite break out past a certain level. Like they're always kind of overlooked or undervalued. Like they have a certain core of like cinephiles who really like and support them, but they never quite break into the mainstream. I didn't see Armageddon time, but it was similarly like completely overshadowed by uh, say the Fablemans in terms of like yeah. the discussion that year about a nostalgic mm-hmm. uh, director looking at their childhood movie. I realize Armageddon time quite different mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and exploring different areas, but know it didn't quite break through at Astra despite the 2010s being kind of a goldmine for thoughtful adult science fiction in the forms of Arrival and Interstellar uh, and all these other movies it's not really celebrated at that level Um, I love it I think it's beautiful yeah Yeah.
0: well um, I'm gonna I'll go into my moment and my moment will kind of talk about like what I got out of the movie when I watched it because When I watched it, yeah, it it hit me pretty hard. Um, Anyway, so the moment is Brad Pitt plays uh, Astronaut, or... A space he, guy. I don't know. He
1: plays Ad Astra. There we go.
2: <laughs> he plays, there he is he's on the Ad Astra. Company. Brad Pitt is Ad Astra. Uh, Ad is short for Adam.
0: Yeah. He plays. He plays uh, Roy, and Roy is going out into. Basically, he's going to Saturn. The whole movie is his journey from Earth to Saturn, because his father, who is who was on the first mission out there like years before when he was just a kid um is basically, they believe that he's still out there and that he's causing havoc. He's basically causing these um crazy electrical storms to happen and they need them to stop. So they're like, well, we'll send his son. Cause if anyone can make him, can make him listen to reason, it's going to be his son. And so Brad Pitt is on a mission to go find his father played by Tommy Lee Jones. And that's, Th- that's the you know the bare bones of the of the movie uh so my moment is when brad pitt is on the flight he's going to i think they're on their way to to mars at this point and he's kind of going through this recorder and he's listening to different messages about his father and watching videos about his father and then you get like he's got like a narration going on um where he's listing all of his father's accomplishments, that he's the most celebrated astronaut in the world. He's the first person to go to Jupiter. He's the first person to go to Saturn. And then then Roy's character says, and then nothing. And that line, I think, was the... Well, I'm trying to remember back to when I was watching this movie in theaters. And I think it was this line that really kind of started to kick off realization of what this movie was about or at least what it was about to me um which is basically it's like this movie seems to be wrestling with the idea of nihilism and kind of struggling for um, meaning in what we do and this statement is almost like it doesn't matter what you do it doesn't matter what you do in life eventually it's all going to be forgotten and i'm like that is heartbreakingly depressing (laughs) um (laughs) but the whole movie is kind of wrestling with that idea how much of that should we put stake in how much should we not really worry about that and and then as the movie went along there was all these other little pieces that kind of played into that theme for me um even something as silly like the there's a there's a part where they actually get attacked by an ape (laughs) at a space station um which is pretty shocking when it happens But even that is kind of like that, even something like that, what just seems to be like an action scene thrown into this, uh, because there are quite a few action scenes in this movie really. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is even like a reminder of, you know, our primitive roots. Right. And how much have we actually moved past that? And, and so there's all these kind of ideas and even, even this project that Tommy Lee Jones is part of where he's, basically gone to the edge of the universe to try or the edge of the solar system to try to you know search for basically it's SETI but more powerfully trying to search for um other life out in the universe and not finding anything and it's like okay well is that talking about a search for god is that what this is about and i realized that this movie's got quite a few layers to it and it really spoke to me when I, when I watched that in the theaters, I remember coming out of there being pretty shook. Um, And I think essentially the movie kind of settles on. Maybe all this is true. Maybe, maybe we're all of our accomplishments do account to nothing, but it's almost like it's making the argument to live in the now to live in the moment um, to live for each other specifically, right. To open ourselves up to, the people in our lives, not to shut them out because they're essentially the most important thing that we have. Um, And I think it's making a statement somewhere along that line, but regardless, I think it's a pretty strong theme. Now, the interesting thing is that this is what I got out of the movie. I don't know that other people see that in the movie. I don't know. Like, but that's kind of one of the great things about movies like this that you can Read so much into it, because I remember coming out of that, and you and I were both pretty high on this movie, Dan. But I think you read like entirely different things about it as if I can recall.
2: well, I don't remember what my exact reaction would have been at the moment. and I've been meaning to revisit the movie. But when I think back on it, and it's it's captured in in what you said, even if I think I come at it from a slightly different angle. But thinking about this sort of this list of career accomplishments, And then nothing to me speaks to this idea of like, when you define your life and legacy and what it all amounts to in career achievements, you know, there, there's, there is fulfillment in that. And there is a lot to be proud of, or there can be, but there also hits a point where that productivity stops. You stop being able to work, you stop being able to make things and then nothing. Um, And so if you measure your life solely by those parameters it's always going to end in disappointment because there always is going to be a point where it stops and then nothing. And to me, what the film is to to your point about nihilism, I think it's kind of asking, well, what do we find meaning and what, what, what matters in, in a life. And it is this sense of like interpersonal connection ends up being the thing, you know, that it's the relationship between father and son and you get it kind of echoed and not just father and son, but, Person to person, but in the the main case of this main relationship, you get it echoed later when, you know, Brad Pitt's leaving the message for his father and he says, he talks about lessons you instilled in me and he says, I remember watching old black and white movies with you and your favorites were musicals. Like it's those shared memories that are the legacy that ends up mattering most. And it finds its ultimate answer later when, you know, Tommy Lee Jones he reunites with his father and his father's talking about not coming to answers and not succeeding. And Brad Pitt saying, we d- now you succeeded. Now we know we're all we've got. Like, that's the answer to that. Like the, then nothing sets up a question that to me, we're all we've got answers, um, which is part of why I love this movie. And I think our friends who thought it was so boring and terrible were uh, foolish and wrong in their assessment. <laughs> um
0: are you on our side, Jamie? Are you I am on your side because okay.
1: yeah, I was a very big fan when I saw it in IMAX back when it came out. Although, uh, okay, can I tell you what, what exactly happened when I saw it uh, when I saw it back then? Please. uh, Over at the Cineflex where I saw it, they didn't even turn the lights off.
2: Oh, <laughs> no. no. <laughs>
1: so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a very dark movie, so I mean, I was able to make out what was happening, but the fact they didn't even turn off the lights, or, or I was did like... nobody no. go tell them? No one did! No one
2: did! <laughs> it's a whole theater full of socially awkward people, like, well, I don't want to bother anyone, so I'll just sit <laughs> and watch it as is.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised that nobody went out and complained about the fact that the lights are still on while the movie was still going. <laughs> if <laughs> not you, funny. then who, JB? well it should have well you know it should have been me anyways (laughs) uh, yeah I um so the last time I saw this again was back when uh was back when I had that completely compromised viewing experience but uh something that's always um something that's always stuck with me about most of James Gray's movies is the fact that uh no matter how no matter what he's, uh, no matter what he's making, it's like it's all. There's always a sense of interpersonal connection that at least makes the gra- the grandiose nature of the adventures that he's showing on film, whether it be in something like We Own the Night or the Lost City of Z. It's the there's always something. There's always a sense of interpersonal connection that at least makes you feel like there's a lot. There's a lot more than what. Meets the eye because everything that you're seeing on the surface is only just is just one layer at most. Yeah. For me, something like Ad Astra, just the fact that uh, what was the OK, what was the budget of this one? I'm going to go look on Wikipedia again. Just
2: I'm going to guess 100 million flat. It
1: was between 80 million and 100 million. So you, were, you weren't too far off.
2: I'm at the maximum. I'm at bare minimum of still being right, but I'm I'm gonna take it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, when I uh, when I
1: saw that when I saw this, I just thought to myself, "Oh wow! I wish more uh, more filmmakers were were willing to be this adventurous with such an obscene amount of money to make a movie, especially because we you know that everything." Especially because we know that the not cinema keeps costing like what 200 million dollars and keeps raking in, keeps raking in, well, it doesn't how many... keep
2: raking in anymore.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, it's not... hey, yeah, I guess not anymore, not anymore now.
2: <laughs> well, it's funny you we were talking uh, earlier about Nolan being like the mm-hmm. last guy who gets away with it mm-hmm. in a way because James Gray, I think, not that a lot of his movies are much smaller than, than yeah. Chris Nolan's. This is mm-hmm. like kind of an exception in being. Uh, such a sort of big movie, but he does follow the similar mold of like a classic American filmmaker where he does not make films that are that radical in their formal style or in their uh, in, in their complexity, but they're really good, well-told structured stories with good characters and good acting. Mm-hmm. Like it's the principle of strong storytelling that has often been the thing that's defined and distinguished the best American cinema. Like when you think about the people who are celebrated as like the great American filmmakers and being people like, say, John Ford, who, you know, is someone who primarily is like a great storyteller. He's not the most indulgent filmmaker. He's not the showiest. In many ways, he's very simple. But in that simplicity, there's a lot of richness. And I think James Gray, even though I wouldn't necessarily describe him as being that similar directly, there's a similar aspiration to what he's trying to do um mm-hmm. which is nice it, it's a shame that almost well, all of his films <laughs> don't succeed in, the, in terms of the metrics that yeah. films are judged by because he's really good but yeah. it
0: does have layers like when i first went to see this movie i was not expecting such a exploration of like spirituality and existentialism i'll tell you that like i mm-hmm. thought i was just in for like brad pitt Goes in spaceships, fights space monkeys. This is what I got. Yeah, I was like, "Holy cow, this is quite something." Yeah,
2: Mm -hmm. I
1: was not expecting that out of a James Gray movie of all people. So, but I'm glad that
2: he, uh, I'm glad that he went that way. (laughs) Well, that's the other reason I think the movie snuck up on me. It Was like, wait, he's making the space movie because it just seems so. And I'm not the most well versed in his filmography, but it seemed something of a left turn in the kinds of movies he made. Um, which I think is why it didn't take forever to clue in that, like, oh no, that is his film, and I should probably see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm honestly amazed it was able to like come out and get a reasonably wide release and in, in the first place because it does seem like Brad Pitt. <laughs> Brad Pitt, sure. Brad Pitt, sure. yeah.
1: He does have
2: that uh that to throw around yeah. the
1: star power, I guess. Yeah. Although yeah. I guess unfortunately people aren't really drawn by star power anymore as much as they are the brand.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's dwindling, but... um, I mean, maybe people
0: were going for Donald Sutherland. I don't know.
2: I hope so. He's a great I hope, actor. I hope that
1: people were going for Tommy Lee Jones, too, because that would have brought me... That wouldn't put my butt in my seat.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I did have a... It's funny you say that, because I was watching... I don't remember what I was watching. It was like a rewatch of something recently, and I'm like, you know, Tommy Lee Jones is really great. I don't think I've ever fully, like, taken stock of just how excellent he is, but... I'm really glad I get to see so many of his movies, so. Hey, I
1: was just glad to see him in a fairly new movie when I saw The Burial on Prime, which I didn't even realize got a theatrical release over here in Toronto, because it was pretty low-key.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Because I think, is that like a, a Prime original? It's, uh...
1: Technically, it's an MGM movie, but now they're Amazon MGM. Right. Which...
2: Because I know from talking to the theater owners here, like at the the indie theater, uh, a lot of MGM movies now are just not being theatrically distributed in Canada, Ah. which is heartbreaking.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Especially because I think uh, this year last year's uh people's choice winner at tiff was an mgm movie i think it's still in its theatrical run right now only because it has the uh it it has the pull from being the people's choice winner at tiff right yeah and that film was american fiction so. yeah which i haven't
2: seen yet i'm excited to
1: it's very um, good it's very good
2: the one, one, one does wonder though is like you know, with Apple, for example, putting a lot of stock this year and like theatrical releases, if you're going to see a shift away again from the streaming only model, because uh similar to the sort of diminishing returns of superhero movies this year, there's been the diminishing returns of streaming financially and this idea right. that like, oh, actually, we're, we're losing money by doing it all this way. So I don't know. Hey,
0: or... Even Netflix is like,
1: we'll give you a week at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even they're <laughs>
2: And all they did
1: it for was just to uh just to uh, certify their movies for Oscar season. Mm-hmm.
2: Although sure. I will say Whatever. I'm
1: glad that I uh, okay, yeah, I'll brag again. I saw May December
2: <laughs> on 35 mil. <laughs> I didn't see it in 35 mil, but I did see it in theaters, and I'll take that as a win. <laughs> yeah, take that. Yeah, you might as well take that while you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean I agree with you in that it is like I don't mean to to besmirch Mr. Gray when I say that like <laughs> You know, I'm not saying his films are simplistic, um, but just that he, I guess what I'm saying is that the idea of like the kinds of films he makes are films that in another time would not be described as like art movies. They yeah. would be described as just like like dramas or like good, solid movies, but because of shifts in in tastes and patterns in in theatrical releases, the kinds of films he makes are put in a category that frames them as being, I don't know, more art films and more challenging than they really are because there is some level of challenge but they're also they're very accessible and they are trying to tell you a story and a very sort of linear plot Mm -hmm. and strongly defined characters like it's the very much like the they're movies you can recommend to non-movie people when they say what should i see and you can't really say just may december to everybody no no, no, you got to pick that audience carefully (laughs) yeah
1: uh, it's also been uh, it's also kind of crazy to be that James Gray would uh, be classified as an art filmmaker around now, based on his earlier stuff. Especially because you, the Yards was written by none other than Matt Reeves, who you know directed the Batman, Cloverfield, and uh, the and uh, two of the Planet Planet of the Apes movies. Like, come on, that's uh, this is, but I guess because it's James Gray. Oh no, art movie.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because he makes movies that aren't, like... Even though Ad Astra has, like, action scenes, it's not, like, an action movie. It's not... Brad Pitt's got to go to f- space and fight the space gorilla. Which, although now that I'm saying it out loud, yeah. I would watch that movie. I would. Too. Well,
1: I would watch James Gray make a movie like that. That's true.
2: It'd be <laughs> like the the beginning of the very first Futurama episode, where it's like space. It seems to go on forever until you get to the end, and the gorilla starts throwing barrels at you. Yeah. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's the movie.
1: So, so Donkey Kong sixty. Oh, oh. Hey, we need James Gray to make the Donkey Kong sixty four movie now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Might I uh, tell? Okay, so. Um, We've know we've been hearing me brag a whole lot, but mind if I tell you a little story now? Uh, mind if I tell you a little story now? Sure. So I was at a retrospective screening of The Yards back in 2019, and James Gray was there for q and A. Q&A. Um, I um, so I got to ask the first question at the Q and A, and James Gray took note of the fact that I was wearing an Anya's Varda shirt, and I asked him a uh. St- I asked him something that was based on some IMDb trivia that I read. And he said, okay, so I heard you were influenced by Claude Chabrol when you were making The Yards. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And then James Gray was like, how could this kid here be wearing an Agnes Varda (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt? What kind of crowd is this? The video's on YouTube, too. Oh, nice. (laughs) Nice.
2: I was gonna say, you got the voice pretty down. Like That does sound like him. (laughs) And
1: then... He tells us uh, the story, or he's like, "Okay, so uh, the thing is, Claude Chabrol. He he actually had no, he actually has nothing to do with this movie at all. That's just one of those incorrect IMDb facts that you hear all the time." <laughs> but Claude Chabrol, you see, he was a very big fan of this movie. And then, uh, I um, I was at an airport in France, and then this woman came. Okay, this woman comes up to me, and she was like my father, he wanted you to have this. That's ex- that's the accent he used, by the way.
2: <laughs> nice.
1: And uh, what do you know? It was a poster that was signed by Claude Chabrol because he Chabrol really loved the yards, apparently. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, James Gray's movies might not be seen by wide audiences, but the filmmakers who see his movies really like it, and that's maybe the mm-hmm. better reward. Exactly, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> nice all right well, there we go we did our modern sci-fi and real modern not like 1970s and up like dan wanted to do
1: look you true set the modern, parameter true modern sci-fi <laughs> no, i kind, I guess i kind of broke the parameter a little bit with uh no you're good okay i just want
0: dan choosing like logan's run or something
2: <laughs> i just i don't uh I don't care for this uh, attack on the integrity of my character. <laughs> oh, well. I probably would have still chosen modern stuff. I was just trying to get a sense of the framework we were working with. <laughs> Regardless, I played by your damn rules. <laughs> for once. For once, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: All right. Well, JB, why don't you share where everybody can find
1: you? All right. Well, on Twitter, because uh, I'm not calling it X. Cause F that.
2: <laughs> Elon's gonna sue you. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. Uh on on Twitter you can find me at Firewalk with Jamie. You can also find my writing on Cinema from the Spectrum. And also on my personal Substack newsletter, Clouds of Gaia. The link for that is cloudsofgaia.substack.com. And for the most part, I'm pretty active on Letterboxd where it's literally just my name, Jamie Rebidal.
0: <laughs> nice awesome Yes, yeah, so everyone go check out Jamie's stuff
1: happy um, to be here
0: <laughs> Dan you got anything going on
2: well given when because we're recording a week ahead from when this is going to come out so I don't know fully where I'll be at by that time I hope the script for the new video is done by then because it's taken a while and it keeps becoming not done and yeah. looking at how much I still need to write and just being like <sighs> Well, so by that please...
1: time, well, by that time I've probably seen a few more movies on 35 millimeter. Probably, anyways. Uh, anyways, yeah. I am seeing. Uh, okay, at, I uh, at the time of this recording, I am seeing White Men Can't Jump, and <laughs> and he got game on 35 mill. Among a few others. Do you
0: live at the theater? <laughs>
2: <laughs> is yeah, it like see, just
1: downstairs or I'm, like...
2: I'm suffering I'm writing I'm like crying I can't get anything done James just having the time of his life like woo real celluloid
1: yeah real, real celluloid
2: yeah well, that's uh, the dichotomy of, of, uh, of man right there <laughs> but hopefully by the time listener you're listening to this the script for the new video is done and I'm actually very excited I think it's going to be a fun topic it's just a matter of getting a lot of disparate ideas into like a cohesive (laughs) format nice
0: all right well jamie thanks for coming on and joining us this week
1: hey thank you again so much for inviting me it's been it's been a really wonderful time and uh daniel it's about time we finally shared one space together with one another
2: (laughs) i know maybe in another 10 years we'll like sit down for a beer who knows
1: (laughs) yeah hey uh maybe uh maybe next time you're in toronto you can stop by bay street video again that's true <laughs> let's I do have us. the card I gotta
2: get it punched a couple times yeah let's times. uh
1: yeah let's shout out the guys at Bay Street Video the very best video store in Toronto maybe the very best maybe the very best in the world I I, I want to butter them up a little bit <laughs> they're pretty <Nice>. sweet yeah <laughs>
0: sweet alright well thanks for listening everybody I've been Ian and I'm Daniel and we'll see you next time